Hello, dear listener. It's Kara. I'm jumping in here at the beginning to give you a little heads up about this next episode about Wheel of Time. (laughs) While I had some success in The Great Hunt and The Dragon Reborn in only having an episode that was an hour and a half long, uh, this time we talked for two and a half hours about The Shadow Rising So rather than inflict all of that on you at once, I'm going to split this into two episodes. The first one will be today, and then the next one will come out in two weeks. This episode covers um, Perrin's plotline and what happens at the White Tower and Nynaeve and Elaine's adventure in Tanchico slash Terrabon. So just a heads up, that this isn't going to be the whole book, and next episode is going to be the continuation of this story. I admit I didn't try very hard to keep it under a certain amount of time. I was just seeing how long we could talk about it, Um, and the answer is always, of course, a very long time because there's a lot that goes on that is fun to talk about and explore. So, sorry, And thanks for listening. Welcome to Backlog Books. In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I've been reading lately. My name is Kara. Thank you for joining me and please be prepared for spoilers. And I am joined today by special guest, returning guest. Really, you live here now. Practically. Practically. Will you Hi, I'm Daniel. <laughs> I've read The Wheel of Time numerous times. Won't shut up about it. <laughs> I love The Wheel of Time. I love time. I love wheels. Um, and yeah, always happy to come back and talk about the books. Uh, so we're talking about book four in The Wheel of Time, The Shadow Rising by Robert Jordan. Uh, I was going to read the summary from the back and do like an author bio. And then I was like, that's silly. It's the fourth book of The Wheel of Time. I've done this three times already. I will just tell you that the book was published in 1992. It is apparently the longest Wheel of Time book, coming in at nearly 400,000 words. Um, that that seems short, because yeah. I think some of the last books by Brandon Sanderson you actually think. might be longer. <laughs> right? But that, That's what Google told me. And I feel me. like Fires of Heaven was really thick paperback mm. and larger than Shadow Rising. I'm just going to Google it. See, Wow, there's a whole statistical analysis page on here. Yeah, you found it. There's probably all kinds of great. I love the data like that. Um, like they do, you know, there's like 2,700 named characters. There's so many different locations. They do breakdown of like how many total words it is, how many pages in the paperback or hardback. There's yeah all kinds of nerd stuff in there. Okay, so maybe Lord of Chaos is the longest one. That feels more right. Because it has 395, and the site says Shadow Rising has 385 or something. Wow, I take it back. It's not the longest Wheel of Time book. It's definitely it just... still bigger than the first three. Oh, yeah. It's it's like at least way like chunkier. 50,000 words, probably. Something. I should um, just... Somebody has a spreadsheet of this. I can yeah. just pull up easily instead of scrolling through this website. Uh love a spreadsheet <laughs> yay data analysis yeah that's good so 
Is there anything you would like to say before I start talking about this book? I think for most people listening to this particular episode, they probably read the series because this is absolutely going to be a spoiler heavy talk. Yeah, um, I, I hope you have at least listened to the first three episodes about Wheel of Time or are somewhat familiar with Wheel if of you're, Time. If you're listening just for the fun of hearing about this weird subculture of Wheel of Time fanatics, um, please f- tell please tell me I would like to study you like a bug. <laughs> <laughs> book four is where Jordan's scope of writing changes. Yes. And we finally branch away from kind of the the romance quest structure of the first three books. Mm-hmm. Um, we finally move away from some of the really focused Arthurian structure to his mytho- his mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get to see a lot of the other elements that were seeded in the first three books that expose other cultures and other mythologies. But now we we finally get that scope. Yes. Um and a book for, I've definitely encouraged you quite a bit about it. And just anybody else that, that has struggled with the first three books, I find book four, and yes, that means reading so many more words and stories about other characters to get to this point. But this is where I feel the epic nature of the greater scope of The Wheel of Time really gets exciting. Yeah, because it is very different from the first three like Mm -hmm. even just me i'm guessing i don't know everything about this series right like i can tell it's not the same kind of story as the first three books and like it does still do the thing where at the end this is like the harry potter books they all had like at the very end harry would fight voldemort right yeah it's like at the very end of all of these so far rand has fought a forsaken right it's like it just changes which one and like what the outcomes are, um, which was interesting because we can talk about that at the end. But like the way he deals with the Forsaken at the end of this book is very different from how he has like interacted with them in the last three. Yeah. Um, so you and certainly I want to get into this uh, as we go through the different plots, but like the part of the widening scope that this book is really about is really showing off the diversity of some of the chosen that were drawn Mm -hmm. to the dark one to become forsaken. And you may not necessarily start to see all of their motivations, but you definitely see very different personalities. And you did, we did in book three, see a little bit of that where like the different forsaken have like, inserted themselves into various um, governments and they're like trying to make everybody go to war or they all have their own different um, goals that they're trying to achieve. Um, We just get like a closer look at it at a couple, at a few forsaken in this, in this um, book. But um, that was one thing that I had written down in my notes was that like Jordan did a really good job of all of these bad guys, quote unquote bad guys, right? They all have very different goals and things they're trying to do, and they get in each other's way. Yeah. And, like, if they were all united to one purpose, this mm-hmm. would have been over already. Like, yep. the... if you got all the Forsaken to agree to to do one thing, <laughs> right, you could have conquered the world. But instead, they're all, they're like 12 cats going in 12 different mm-hmm. directions. Yep. Or however many of them there are. 13. 
Yeah, that checks out, actually, if we're doing biblical stuff. Yeah, it's representative of yeah. so many things. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the the Forsaken absolutely represent, no matter how detailed and, and archetypical um, they may be, their ultimate representation is that evil is selfish. Oh, yeah. And it is so selfish that there is literally no way that they would cooperate together yeah. past their own possible like empowerment from somebody else's you know being using somebody else mm -hmm. whether it's in an alliance or not it's still all about that individual forsaken um and yeah. what they can get and benefit out of so they're happy to screw somebody else over because they're all on a ladder mm -hmm. to become the dark one's right hand yeah so the story begins in tear um, which is like traditional in these books so far. It's been four books. I feel like I've got enough data points. I can like actually make sweeping assumptions about the whole series now. I, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Where each book begins and we're in a town and we're trying to figure out what to do. And we spend like 200 pages talking about what we should do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then everybody splits up and goes their separate ways. <laughs> yeah. And that's pretty much how it's been uh, in the last four books. Uh, I thought it was very funny. I was thinking about this today. Rand it, uh, has taken over. He's declared himself the Dragon Reborn. The High Lords of Tira are like, oh, you're our new ruler. We're trying to slip stuff past you, whatever. And Rand's extreme focus is on the taxation of farmers. He's like, okay, yes, I'm the Dragon Reborn lower taxes on farmers yeah. and that's like his party line that's his <laughs> one single issue voter randall thor lower taxes on farmers which I, I thought was so funny because in book one Morgay's queen of andor is like um the two rivers doesn't pay their taxes uh-huh yes so here's my theory is that rand doesn't know what taxes are until he gets to tear and then he's talking to these lords and they're like, hey, we got all the tax money from the farmers. And Rand goes, the what? <laughs> <laughs> from who? Uh, you really get the like quality every man, you know, oh, he's, yeah. a, he's a shepherd <laughs> from a backwater little country town. And he was raised by his dad, who's a war veteran, turned dedicated villager uh leader council member and mm -hmm. you know farmer and tax you, evader tax evader <laughs> yeah you, you can't get any more heartfelt than that you, yeah. you put this guy in power and he's immediately like stop screwing over the little guys mm -hmm. they bring you food <laughs> that's such a, a great little call out amongst the greater scope mm -hmm. of you know all the weight that's coming to bear on rand and now he's finally like he played a little bit of the game of houses mm -hmm. in Kareen and, you know, started to get pretty savvy at it. He had a great mentor mm -hmm. in Tom Marilyn. And now he's literally finally just straight up recognized as yeah. the one true lord of tear, yeah. uh, if nothing else yet. Um, but they're like, well, you got the sword from the stone. You are the king. Yeah. And then he's like. Yeah, about that. Yeah. <laughs> I have thoughts. Yes. <laughs> this is not going to go the way you think it's going to yeah. go. Lower taxes. 
<laughs> I, that is one of the things that we see um, in this beginning part is um, Rand starts courting Elaine, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and he they go on, it's very cute, they go on little walks through the Stone of Tear, and the Aiel are, like, following them around, but the Aiel are also, like, I mean, we support them, and so they'll, like, st- situate Elaine in, like, a little alcove, and they'll be like, okay, wait here for five minutes, and then they'll walk Rand past, and they're yeah. like, what a coincidence, <laughs> Elaine, fancy meeting you here. Um, but one of the things is that because Elaine has been raised to be a queen, she knows stuff about ruling, yeah. and Rand asks her advice and her opinion yeah. and listens when she gives it. Absolutely. Um, and then one of the things... <laughs> we see later is um, when they're talking about going to war and Moraine is like, I need Rand to start a war and do something with these people. Basically he needs to get them out and get them doing something or else they're going to decide for themselves what they're going to do. Right. And Rand doesn't want to do this obviously. And Moraine is talking to Elaine and Nynaeve and Egwene and Egwene and Nynaeve are like, it's good. He shouldn't start a war. Wars are bad. And then Moraine and Elaine are like, well, yes, wars are bad. But also in terms of like having a country that you need to like direct, it's going to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. You need to direct it to go to a specific place. Yeah. Giving it a war is like one of the best things you can do with like this whole vehicle that you're driving it is and it's like a very different perspective that they they share that elaine and moraine share that like Nynaeve and Egwene didn't yeah like the small town versus the we were raised in court like and it's it's world. such an important and historically relevant context too because we're even in our modern era very much on that cusp all the time yeah one of the greatest ways to fully unite a people in a very diverse culture or country is to give them an enemy yeah common enemy um and in in the context of this epic fantasy kind of focused around various mythological end of world war scenarios Mm -hmm. rand's task now as the savior, the chosen yeah, no one, pressure, buddy. is to lead all of these people against the enemy. Yeah. The mythos in this well, setting, everybody is it's aware. It's the last battle, yeah, right? It's specifically exactly. called a battle. And everybody is aware of the dark one as the enemy. Mm-hmm. But none of these people remember that Trollocs are real. Right. The It's been a thousand years or more um, actually, I think the thousand year one was the war with Arthur Hawkwing. The 2000 years ago, the war with the shadow was the, the Trolloc Wars. Mm-hmm. Like the, that's been so long that people, you know, Trollocs and Fades and all of that yeah. dark ugliness is mythological. It's made up. They're folk yeah. tales. Well, and I do like in terms of like scope, right? You get, we were on the border uh, in book one and book two and like the people on the border fight against the blight every day yeah they know trollocs are real they see them they fight against them every day right and then you get all the way down south to tear and they're like nobody's heard of a trolloc like oh that old story yeah and it like gives you the scope of like hey these people don't can't just like 
look it up on Facebook or whatever to right. learn that there's like <laughs> all the people in the north are actually fighting Trollocs. Like they don't have that kind of connectivity that we have and kind of take for granted at this stage. And if you're in such a low technology environment, it's like, yeah, it takes months for news to get anywhere. And then you're like, well, that's from two months ago. And it's like fifth hand news. And I don't know that guy. I don't trust him. Like, so it gives a wide scope to the world, I guess, for it to be so separated. And you you called it out. Like, we really did go from kind of Menethrin and Edmunds Field is kind of central in the continent. Mm -hmm. And he went all the way to the far north, to the borderlands, exposed to the blight. Mm-hmm. And now his journey has taken him back down. He went to the far he's west coast. To, like all corners of this. And con, now right? he's he's gone to Tyr. Yeah. And then by the end of book four, he's gone east to yeah. the Aeol Waste. So, again, kind of just going back to the widening scope of this book, you finally get this kind of greater picture and mm-hmm. some of the greater cultural uh, yeah. challenges he's facing to try to get these people ready yeah. <laughs> for the last battle. Yeah. Poor guy. He sure is having a hard time. Um, so we split up out of tier. Um, Perrin and Fail go to the two rivers. Um, oh, but the thing is that Perrin has to like physically wrench himself away because of the like pull of Taverin and specifically mm-hmm. the pull of like the Dragon Reborn is so strong. Yeah. And one of the things about Matt's story in this book specifically, while he does like get all his like unique plot items or whatever in this yeah. book, he is stuck to Rand and can't leave. Yeah. And like he has almost no agency in what he's doing. Because he feels so pulled to Rand and what Rand is doing that every time he thinks about leaving, it's like he forgets immediately. It's like ADHD strikes and he starts thinking about cards and women and he gets distracted and goes off. (laughs) And and you're like, Matt, you were going to leave. No? Okay. So and like that's basically his what's happening to him in this book. I'm glad you pulled that particular thread out. Of, yeah. of the plot of this story in this book particularly the 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 concept of the Tavarin and the way Jordan writes about it and the way he expresses it through Matt and Perrin is really fascinating because it really relies on the personalities of those characters Perrin is slow to make a choice mm-hmm. he considers things carefully and he's hesitant to cause harm but when he makes a choice you're not gonna stop him and you're not getting his way yeah and he has a greater motivation personally to leave Rand behind Mm -hmm. in this particular moment and that gives him the strength finally to pull away Mm -hmm. and that gives him a chance to grow yeah very rapidly and very distinctly by the end of this book and throughout the rest of the series yeah he has a very separate story arc that starts to happen Mm -hmm. what i like about the way that this works with the dynamic of the personalities is that matt has been damaged matt has been harmed 
and has been afraid and been challenged by his tie to Rand and mm-hmm. his friendship for the last three books. Yeah. And he's he's been fighting it since the moment they left the two rivers. But Rand needs him at this particular time, in these particular moments, leading up to what's going to happen in the next book. Mm-hmm. And in order for... Like, Matt's kind of going along with what's happening because he, he doesn't have a choice part of the Tavarian. And like you said, it's a lot of distraction. Yeah. Which is partly his personality, partly the pattern, mm-hmm. working to keep him by Rand's side until Matt gets what he needs. Yeah, which is all this junk he gets. Yeah, the, just the junk. The junk. The, the junk. garbage. He doesn't need It's trash. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I... In, in the consideration that you brought up mm-hmm. where it's, you know, talking about how strongly he's tied versus Perrin, the book talks a lot about fate and free will and the whole arc mm-hmm. and the whole epic is about that. Free will versus fate or what you're forced to do. Right. And we see a very specific instance of that struggle with Matt. Yeah. So Perrin, going to the two rivers, he's going there because... There are white cloaks there. They hear this news that there are white cloaks in the two rivers looking for him, basically. And he's like, okay, I'm going to go and give myself up to the white cloaks so that they'll leave the two rivers alone. Um, This is obviously a great plan. So what he does is he's like, there's this whole thing with Fahil and Loyal, and it's it's fine. I got... I like Fahil at the end of this book. Yeah. But at the beginning, uh huh. It was a struggle. You could say it. It's just difficult. <laughs> difficult. Difficult. <laughs> <laughs> she does this thing where she positions loyals like exactly in between her and Perrin and like gets him involved in their huge mess. Yeah. And I'm like, that's that's shitty. Yeah. Like, I understand why you did it. And, like, obviously you're used to getting what you want and you're going to work for it. But, like, I I just think Perrin and Fahil should not involve other people in their mess. Yeah. They are obviously perfect for each other <laughs> and should not involve other people in whatever they're doing. <laughs> because they both have this really strong, like, jealousy thing mm-hmm. going on. And they both do it. Yeah. Um, and it's like it makes both of them happy when the other one is jealous about the, them. Right. Yeah. Parents like, ooh, she's jealous about me. And Fayel's like, ooh, he's being jealous when I talk to this other boy. And I'm like, great. I'm so happy for you guys. Stop involving other people. <laughs> oh, you're going to love the next 12 books. Uh, I know. Like, <laughs> Barreline is like a thing. <sighs> Reading this as a teenager... A lot of stuff with Perrin and Fayil's romance was fascinating in a good way and also like confusing oh, in sure. so many ways. Because I didn't. Because Perrin's confused 90% yeah, of the time. Right? And you're mostly in his perspective. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's very difficult. Like, I didn't associate very strongly with Perrin uh, during my first few read throughs. And. Uh, especially in the early books. By the end of the series, he's amazing. Um, but that is a like them being constantly jealous of each other and the way they express it, um, and particularly challenged by Perrin's 
kind of conservative nature and mm-hmm. you know recalcitrance to to be visibly angry or get angry with Fail and Fail wanting that passion, mm-hmm. wanting the you know the energy that comes from that bickering right. and right. the flame of love <laughs> because she's Saldean and right. that's how they love. Yeah. She is mad at Perrin for a good portion of the series because he just won't be passionately angry with her mm-hmm. and then make up, you know, have passionate makeup yeah. sex with yeah. her. Like yeah. it's so funny and so much of that went over my head as a kid mm-hmm. and then now like after meeting so many different other people in different types of relationships, like seeing how that to an extent and with, you know, the right considerations and, you know, consent and respect and everything, like right. some people do if that's really what you thrive on do, that. Do it, man. As long as you communicate about it and you know that's what you're doing, fine. But that's not what Faye doing. But also, <laughs> well, yeah. And like, she's a young young yeah, woman like and like 16 or 15 out or in the world for the first time and that's how she knows relationships work so why wouldn't hers work that way yeah you know i get i get it it is annoying it is it is hilarious like <laughs> i definitely wanted to get your your perspective on fail and as we go through the arcs and the plots uh, yeah. i'd love to get more but like she gets she's one of the more uh like controversial, controversial yeah. characters yeah. of the series for sure. Well, it does help that I have a Fail supporter mm-hmm. in my DMs. Yeah. I messaged her and I was like, please talk me through why you like Fail so Heck that yeah. I can get like a, a different perspective on this. Because right now I'm annoyed as heck. Yeah. Uh, and she had some good points. So. Nice. Um, so they go to the two rivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Perrin's gonna give himself up, whatever. Uh, oh, and they take so the noble. the ways. They go through the ways. Yeah. Oil. Um, what happens instead is that he kind of accidentally rallies the two rivers folk to work together and drive off both the Trollocs that are attacking them and the White Cloaks. So that happens. He even manages to get the White Cloaks to ally with the two rivers. Briefly. Briefly. And then they sort of ruin it there at the end. Oh, of course. They're so. the white cloaks. They suck. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to ruin everything at yeah, the end. Yeah, they suck. <laughs> um, yeah, I was looking through my notes. Um, and and anytime there's like a white cloak section, I would just do, I would just write, and the white cloaks do something shitty. Uh, and that's, <laughs> that's all I would write. And then I got near the end of the book and I was reviewing my notes and I was like, should I have? written more about what the White Cloaks were doing, maybe? Mm, <laughs> no. No. I don't think so. They're, I stand by it. <laughs> speaking of the White Cloaks, though, there is a beginning, uh, or in the beginning of this book, there is um, uh, a chapter, or like a, a prologue chapter, talking and meeting yes. with the Lord Captain Commander. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about meeting him, kind of seeing what's going on there? I mean, so... From what I remember, because again, I don't I don't pay that much attention to the white cloaks. Sure. Um, but we there's like a, a worm tongue guy, mm-hmm. and it's Pat and Fane, disguised. Yep. He's hanging around, um, and he's like doing his evil villain monologuing. I need I need you to trap Randall Thor in the two <laughs> rivers. You know. Um, and so there's a lot of like the white cloaks are very full of 
self-righteousness. Um, but they're exactly the same kind of conniving, working for themselves, petty, bickering, and posturing that you see in everybody else. Yeah. Um, they just have an army to back up that. Yeah. So. They have a very powerful order of knights yes. to just cause mischief wherever they want because they have such military strength mm -hmm. and they've for so long been stationed in a country with a very weak monarchy mm -hmm. that they've been able to exert way too much influence sure. and then start expanding out into other countries even if they're you know not officially welcomed in any capacity at all mm -hmm. and they have no real authority in those lands yeah they I will mean, make them their own authority if you have 500 men with you that's that's your own authority right. basically yeah. if you have a small army you don't need anybody else's permission yeah um in that meeting uh with uh pedro nail nail um mm -hmm. you also meet masima who is from uh the great hunt yes he was one of the soldiers yes. from shinar that went out with this is sounding uh, very familiar but again in my notes i wrote sure the white cloaks were doing something suspicious. So Masima has now become oh, a believer. Yeah, yeah, he's rallying a bunch of people to the Dragon Reborn. Yeah. That's what he's doing a lot of. He's yeah. causing lots of problems. He has or... essentially established himself as a prophet. Yeah. Um, and he will have a continued part to play in the story. Sure. Um, so Everybody I just kind of does. wanted to visit that. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so... The other thing that happens at the kind of the beginning related to the White Cloaks is that Galad, one of Elaine's half-brothers. Half-brother. Her half-brother. Yep. So Morgay's married a noble from Kareen. Yeah. Um, and I forget his name off the top of my head. That noble was Galad's father. Oh, uh, Terengale. Terengale. Right. Yes. <laughs> Can't believe and I remember that. Terengale Damadred. Mm, yeah. By the way, who named they named their son Galadadred. Galadadred. Galadadred Damadred. Okay. Galadred Damadred. That was terrible of them. <laughs> um, so that man fathered Galad uh -huh. with Tigraine. Yes. Then Tigraine disappeared. Yes. He remarried Morgays yes. when Morgays' family won the fight for the Andoran yes. throne. Uh, nice little, you know. He wanted to be king of Andor. <laughs> court, courtly complications of oh yeah, how you form alliances. Um, not quite Game of Thrones, but yeah, fair. It's fair. Um, and then of course Damadred is also M Moraine. Moraine's last yeah. name. Moraine is everybody's aunt. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Uh, the the <laughs> reason I bring that up is because he's at the White Tower doing White Tower stuff, training to be a warder. And he's reading, like, the Children of the Light uh, Book of Mormon. Yeah. Their propaganda book. And he's like, oh, I don't know, Gowan. I think I have some pretty good ideas. And <laughs> Gowan reads over his shoulder, and, and the ideas are, like, being as boring as possible and have no fun. Oh. And it's like, okay, buddy. <laughs> oh, man. Gowan is the best understanding I ever had. Of what a paladin in D and D is, oh yeah, like the stereotypical, sure, like just so obnoxiously righteous <laughs> and good 
Yeah. And lawful. Yes, lawful. He just makes nothing else fun. Yes. Um, but I also find his approach and the dynamic, like not dynamic, but the contrast between Galad and Gawain in mm-hmm. particular, um, as their characters are developed through the story, uh, very fascinating because, yeah. you know, they establish in book one that Galad has this kind of oh, firm black nobility. And white. There's no yeah. no nuance. And that also, of course, contrasts with Rand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that'll also be an interesting kind of parallel yeah. to follow. But seeing Galad reading the book of mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever order, uh, the children is very fitting like it just yeah. it seems so natural for his character to get a hold of that um and it seems you know gowan makes a crack about it and then kind of moves on it's all these little seeds yeah all these little connections yeah. and just it's we're gonna plant the seed in this book and five books later you'll see it come to culmination it'll be amazing yeah sure um <laughs> So we should talk about the White Tower next. But Two Rivers, the thing that happens at the end of the Two Rivers plotline is uh, Fael and Perrin get married. They do! Uh, which marks the fastest any relationship has moved in these books ever. Yeah. Congratulations to Fael for getting any of the Two Rivers per- people to, like, make a decision about a relationship in basically one book. Yeah. Like, yeah. None she of, crushed it. None of the boys know about women that's true <laughs> like like every other boy does better like they yeah, yeah rand is still like does elaine like me uh-huh yeah they've been necking in corners in the in the stone of tear uh, and admittedly she wrote him two very confusing letters so she's a complicated woman um <laughs> she gets to do that because she's you know potentially next queen so she does she what is, she wants she is the next queen there's no she, she's the daughter heir. Don't make that face at me. I know what happens, more or less. Sure. Uh... <laughs> but in the two rivers, so Fayola yeah. and Perry do get married. And I also, we we kind of jumped quite around uh, yeah, the events yeah. of the two rivers. But the, the whole journey starts because uh, Perrin, like Rand gets a vision that uh, the two rivers is going to be attacked. Uh, or or Perrin does. They they hear news from like a traitor. Yeah. Like the news filters to all three of them, to Rand and to Perrin and to Matt, that the Two Rivers is under attack. Yeah. And Matt's like, mm, I'm not going back there. Rand's right. like, I I literally can't. I have yeah. so many other things to yeah. do. And Perrin's like, well, I feel very strongly that this is the thing that I need yes. to do. So he takes them through the ways. And he's very concerned about his family. Yes. Oh, yeah. Which is... Listen. The co- like the terrible thing. This is one of the chapters when when Perrin is in the, t- the the Two Rivers again. Like, this is definitely one of the chapters they, that I cried. They fridged Perrin's entire family. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to put it that way. But I feel like in the first three books, Perrin has thought more about Master Luhan than he Mm -hmm. has about his entire family. Yeah. And so to have him come back to the two rivers and I I mean, it's horrible. He finds out literally his entire family has been murdered. Yeah. In quote unquote by the Trollocs, but probably by Padden Fane and his rogue white cloaks. Yep. Um, It's it's frustrating because you're right. He you got more 
of an on-page relationship with his mentor and trainer, mm-hmm. uh, Master Luhan, than you did with his family. Yeah. So it, it is very awkward to have that same emotional impact. So I think this is one of the elements where Jordan kind of missed a step on really hitting that emotional beat. If yeah. that's what if that's what that character needed in that particular point in the story. Yeah. The family should have been established in the first book. It's like I don't even remember his family from the first book because he's living with Master Luhan yeah, exactly. in Iman's field. So like I mean, we talk a little bit, I guess, about his family farm, but yeah. like you don't but you don't, you don't see, see his them. family at all. Um and so. then that also is one of the, the big challenges uh with what they're doing with the T V show. Yeah. And why that was so frustrating. Yeah, I mean as we get more and more into Perrin's story, I'm like, yeah, okay, I guess killing killing the wife he didn't actually have is like the shortcut for all of this, basically. Yeah. It it does what you need it to do for Perrin. Yeah. But now that you've seen Perrin go home. Yeah. And you've seen him find love with another woman mm-hmm. and get married at mm-hmm. the end of that of this book, not to delve too much into the TV show, but what is how does that contrast feel? Well, it's very different because in the TV show, it's like he married his high school sweetheart. Yeah. Or like mm, the girl he took to promise his second choice. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and then in the book, he's already seen the world. He has traveled literally across this entire continent. He knows things that he has learned more in the last year and done more in the last year than anybody he grew up with. Right. Like, aside from Rand and Matt and Egwene, he is the most well-traveled. He knows the most. He's He speaks casually to Aes Sedai. Yeah. Right? Like, he's, like, this incredibly <laughs> foreign creature now. changed. Like, he's so different from the blacksmith's apprentice who left a year ago. Yeah. Like, it's no wonder the people in the Two Rivers are, like, calling him, literally calling him Lord yeah. when... Like, they grew up with him, right? But he's done so much and changed so much um, that it's, like, it's very different when somebody comes to that point for a marriage um, and, like, decides. And and he and Fael have traveled together and we've seen them together. And and whether their relationship is good or not, right, they have been through a lot of stuff together in the last three months or whatever. Yeah. It hasn't been very long. Um, it's different than somebody who's been safe at home for their whole life mm-hmm. marrying somebody because Perrin knows they could both die. L- literally, he's expecting to die when they get yeah. married. He's like, I'll, this is our last chance. Yeah. We'll get married and then I'm going to die tomorrow. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm going to send her off and I'm going to die. The The classic, like going to war eve mm-hmm. essentially kind of thing that yeah, so many soldiers much. go through and it's just a a desperate grasp at at love and connection mm-hmm. and a, a person that is risking you know being close to you and then potentially suffering yeah your loss like there's just a lot of context around parents story in this book that i felt really gave his character so much more depth and growth mm-hmm. and just appreciation just really yeah. kind of let him shine 
yeah um, and the, it the was, greater personality and context he has it's good to get him out on his own um and like there are Aes Sedai there but they're staying in the background they're being yeah. like advisor roles and they're letting him be the face of what's happening yeah. to the two rivers um and they're helping like where they can but the other thing we also see parents start to do more. He was doing this a little bit in book three, but he's doing his wolf brother stuff. Yeah. Even though there are not. And there's one wolf in this and it's Hopper. Hopper. Very briefly. Um, but like Perrin is starting to use. He's like, OK, I know the wolf dream happens and I can use it. And he starts to very instinctually like he uses it to scout the two rivers. Yeah. And like to to like figure out what's going on around them. He uses it to figure out that the way gate's been reopened and like all this stuff. And it's really cool to see him be like, to start using that yeah. um, and not be so squirrely about it. Um, but I sure wish there had been some more wolves in this book. <laughs> it's, my, it's my one note. He's, like he, more he wolves. He summoned some. Did he? <laughs> Didn't he summon some for the, the battle with the Trollocs? No. You sure? I don't think so. Okay. Well, I feel like I would have remembered that, but I may be somewhat misremembering because it basically, like you say, he's he's growing into his powers. He's finally yeah. just like Rand is. Yeah, very much. Ultimately, accepting he's the Dragon Reborn. Perrin is accepting that he's a wolf brother. He's starting to conceptualize what that means for him, mm -hmm. and getting past that initial just supernatural instinctual fear yeah um and the the trust that he's built with hopper in particular mm -hmm. uh is really what comforts him and draws him into that now he's exploring the dream the wolf dream uh a lot more and developing his skill set there yes and that allows him to communicate with wolves um and that's going to continue to grow and develop mm -hmm. um so i assure you there will be many, many more wolves throughout this story. There better be. <laughs> it's not just a constant tease with his power. Yeah. Um, so one of the reasons to talk about the Two Rivers plotline kind of first and by itself is that it's sort of separate from yeah. what happens in the rest of the book like i'm sure it will have wider implications mm -hmm. later especially with perrin <laughs> being like oops i'm the lord of the two rivers sort of thing um and like see how that develops but like for this story it's very it's like a little pocket story it very much is because um, uh, it happens so far away and from like all the other action and like the rest of the stories are connected to rand yeah basically um so I guess we could talk about the White Tower because yeah. we've kind of talked a little bit about this is the second kind of pocket storyline. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's more connected to Rand, though. I remember coming into the story kind of the first time and feeling very much that same thing. Like the, the parents story in the two rivers felt very self-contained, mm -hmm. very separate. And then the the drama at the White Tower happening was just like, why are we dealing with the the White right. the, the I said I like yeah. what what is this important? Why are we reading mm -hmm. about this context when Rand is way over there? Right. Um, which of course 
can be said about the Dragon Reborn as well. So much of that story, you're not dealing with Rand either. You're He's just dealing with of that book. all of the other things that are happening because the last battle is coming. Yeah. Um, and there's just so much other drama in the world. And this is one of the things that I greatly enjoy about Jordan's writing in particular is that you see what's happening elsewhere. Yeah. Um, you meet all these other characters that have all these other motivations and all these other complications mm -hmm. um, that may be influenced by Rand or because the Dragon Reborn is coming, mm -hmm. but they're not directly involving him or like right. any of the main characters in the same way. Like suddenly we're dealing with Swan. Yes. Who at the first book and the second book, you're just like, oh, this is the, the Ireland. She's the important person. Mm -hmm. She's some obscure leader on high. Yeah. We're never going to hear from her again. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then suddenly. Surprise. <laughs> suddenly she's now like a B tier character. Like yeah. you, you, you get more of her context and her story and her history. Yeah. So, and actually what happens to Swan is pretty directly tied to Rand because the um, the drama in the White Tower uh, is basically they uh, split. The tower has like a schism. It's like a church schism, but with magic uh, and they it kill a bunch of people. Precisely like that. Um, well, weird. It's like it's she's the magic pope or whatever. The magic pope. <laughs> um, so Min is there because Moraine sent her at the beginning of the Dragon Reborn. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm getting all these titles like jumbled up in my head now. I'm like, yeah, happens can't to me remember too. what book I'm talking about. So Min is there and Swan's like, oh, thank God. Someone I know isn't involved in all this plotting. And is like, okay, we're disguising you. I need you in the tower to like help me root out the Black Aja because they're probably still here. And probably. <laughs> chances seem good. And so... What happens is that Swan is, like, overthrown by, like, a m minority, basically. They get, like, a simple majority. Very, Ooh, very, and they do it very quickly. Absolutely, yes. Um, before any of the rest of the Ajas can come along and be like, okay, hold on. What, what, let's, let's stop and think about this. And their reasoning is because they think she's working for the dragon reborn yeah um so that's like they use rand as their excuse for overthrowing suan and throwing her in jail and then stilling her yeah they like very quickly in 24 hours remove her from her position of power and then take her connection to the one power yeah they're like we're gonna take absolutely everything from you everything um she was the most powerful woman a, in the world very quick at like the beginning downfall. of this book yeah and this is one area where jordan i think really shined he's been setting up some of his political landscape very well in the first few books when you you meet all the lords in kareen mm -hmm. you've met the queen and some of the people in andor You've met the lords in Tyr, mm -hmm. and you you start to see that he understands and has, has studied, of course, like history, but he understands how to write the vicious political maneuvering. Yeah. And 
the schism in the White Tower and how quickly it happens and by the, the mm-hmm. bare minimum sitters and just all of that, you will get more bits and pieces later through the story about mm-hmm. it, but it is really sundering in in the emotional impact that I, I remember feeling reading that happening. Mm-hmm. And there's a particular thing that happens. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that particular thing that happens? Are we talking about the same particular thing? Is it Gowan? It's Gowan. <laughs> Holy. Hmm. Gowan, who has been admittedly <gasps> a little on edge this whole book. He's been like a little bit kind of breathing down everyone's necks, wondering where the heck Elaine and Egwene are. But mostly Elaine, because that's like his charge and his sister. He's supposed to protect her. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so while the White oh. Tower is being like split, Gowan leads the young warders in training against the warders yeah. in support of the people who overthrew Solon Sanche. Yeah. So he's like, there's this one line where they're like, yeah, if Gowan hadn't done that, the warders would have gotten Swan out of prison before she was stilled and she could have taken power back. Yeah. But because Gowan was there and had the charisma and the leadership among the young warders, yeah. he basically helped the coup succeed. Yeah. Uh, and then as they're like sneaking out of the White Tower, Min has got Leanne and Suan. They run into Gowan and Min somehow convinces him to like let them out and yeah. let them leave. Uh, which he does. So he in this moment, this choice is probably one of the most pivotal character moments of any character in the entire series. Yeah. And much like Fael, Gawain is a, a highly controversial character sure. that people love to shit on because he is going to make these types of choices a hundred times over. Yeah. And and this is a character that's based firmly in Arthurian legend. Mm-hmm. Um, Sir Gawain in the Green Knight. Um, there was a great uh, adaptation about that recently but the the personality here and Gawain's fault is the belief in himself oh yeah and again this is such a, a beautiful literary contrast to Galad mm-hmm. who isn't believing in himself but he's believing in what is right yeah and Galad at least has some awareness and scope of what other people think is right mm-hmm. and what is law yeah. that other people have created and judged to be right. Right. Gawain is pure passion. Surely he's like making the decision for what's right based on what he believes. Yes. And not... Because he's been raised. Sure. That's, to I mean, feel a little bit like that. Yeah. The... And he never quite got the proper perspective and judgment. Yeah exercised to where he could back that up yeah he faces down hammer who is swan's warder Mm -hmm. and who has been training him to be a warder yeah and he wins yeah and there's a very much an element you know kind of like the samurai honor code and things here where 
now the student has killed the master and, you know, Anakin and, you know, (laughs) all of that. So it's, I was so mad at Gawain. Sure. So mad at this book. And like, even in the moments I'm mad at him, I was like, this writing and this characterization is freaking brilliant. Like Mm. this character in one fail choice made all of these other dominoes fall. Yeah. And he has single-handedly weakened humanity before the last battle. (laughs) Good job, buddy. It's interesting to have such a pivotal moment happen for this character in this story. And it's kind of like it happened sort of side stage. Yeah. Like we haven't gotten any Gowan perspective we see him through Min's eyes, and she just gets little glimpses of him. Yeah. Right? She doesn't know him as well as, like, Elaine does. Um, and so it's interesting that that's, like... His kind of big his, entrance into the story. big moment. <laughs> and it's, like, it kind of comes out of nowhere in terms of the, like, perspective and where we've spent our energy and focus. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's, uh... <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. I do. The other thing that happens at the end of the White Tower storyline, they're sneaking out of the White City. It's not Gondor. Tarvalon. Tarvalon. Thank you. Uh, I was going to call it Camelon. I was like, I know it's not Camelon. Yeah. Um, and they find Loghain. Yeah. Uh, who is the false dragon who was also stilled. He's wandering around the city going, I'm trying to escape, but I'm so lost. And I love the moment where Suan's like convinces him to join their quest. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like, hey, I'm your best chance at revenge against the people who did this to you. But I also love that she's like willing to take any tool yeah and put it in her oh, arsenal. Yeah. She's like she took Min and turned Min into like her spy and her like person she needed and then she sees Loghain who's like the enemy basically all th- that they've been working against. Yeah. And she's like I can use that and yeah. immediately without hesitation puts him in her pocket yeah. for later. She's like I need that. Yeah. That's coming with me. She is Again, another character that we haven't gotten any perspective stuff from in the first few Not in the first few books, but we do get some in this book. Yeah. Uh, And just the ever-widening scope of the story and the various characters that have important things to play. And she became Amarillyn for a myriad of reasons. Mm -hmm. And she is very wise and very clever and very driven yes which is specifically the the two elements that she and moraine share mm-hmm. um and and why they have essentially you know colluded uh for the last 20 years yeah. to find the dragon They're reborn and to similar. make this happening and she understands that at any given moment she can she can make things happen yeah. she, she's not going to give up She's going to keep, she has like 12 plans in action. And yeah. if two of them come back, she's like, okay, we're going off of that. Yeah. Um, she's just like, 
just her moments where she's in her study thinking about what to do next and she's like plotting and thinking okay I've got this set up over here I've got this set up over here what can I do next what do I need to keep an eye on she's just like yeah she's playing like, 3D chess for sure yeah um, so she and Leanne and Legane and Min all escape yes uh, Gawain has has made his pivotal character choice yep and uh, Elida Dorvrini yes has been raised to the stole mm. and the Amerlin seat. Yeah. Uh, and she well. is the uh, red Aja who has been mentoring Morgays in the wow. court of Andor and yeah. also knows Elaine very well and yeah. Gawain. Yeah. Um, and now she has become the most powerful woman in the world. Yeah. And she has Gawain as this little thread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm sure she won't use that to her advantage at all. No. Nah. Did you ever watch Deep Space Nine? Oh, yeah. So, you know Kai Wynn? She's the Bajoran who, like, did you finish Deep Space Nine? Yes, yes. She's the Bajoran who's like, the prophets have spoken to me, and she's the worst. Mm Mm-hmm. That's who Elida is. Bingo. In my head. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that's an interesting character because we also haven't seen very much from elida yet right like we've seen little glimpses of her in andor and here but like i assume after this point we will get much more of her. Mm-hmm. yeah so yeah she will she will continue to be mm-hmm. a thorn and by thorn i mean an absolute freaking <laughs> pain in the butt in everyone's world yeah yeah that checks out um so the next little thing, because we have to talk about Rand last. I'm sorry. Sure. The next thing is Nynaeve and Elaine go to Tanchico. Yeah. With Tom Marilyn and Julian the Thief Catcher. Julian the Thief Catcher. Um, and they're trying to chase down the Black Aja, and they are also looking for, I don't remember how they find out about this, there's like a angry all magic mm-hmm. item yep. that will let a female channeler control a male channeler. Dum, and they're dum, dum. trying to find it before the black Aja find it and use it on Rand. Yep. Uh, so no pressure, no problem. Um, that is the Adam. <laughs> the Adam. Well, it's it, it's like the prototype of that. Yes. I guess because it's got two bracelets on it. Yeah. Not just one. Um, but yeah. So they go there, and their plan... (laughs) So Tanchico, speaking about, like, um, politics and, like, different things happening that Jordan was writing about, different kinds of governments and political scheming, Tanchico is currently in the middle of civil unrest because they're, like, electing a new leader, the Pentarch or whatever, Mm -hmm. to one of their positions of power. Yep. Uh, And that hasn't happened, and so that's they're kind of in flux there. And then also, for some reason, there's a bunch of white cloaks there. And then <laughs> Just also... Just everywhere, like cockroaches. <laughs> sure are. And also, there's, like, an army of people who are sworn to follow the Dragon Reborn hanging out around Tanchico, like, in the area. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot happening in Tanchico. Yeah. Uh, and when Nynaeve and Elaine are like, we're going, everybody's like, are you sure? <laughs> it kind of sucks there right now. Yep. Um, and it does. Lots of civil unrest. They run into Bail Doman. Yay! There he is again. 
Uh, and he's like, oh, I'm really sorry I left you in Falma that time when I was going to help you escape. Uh, I feel kind of bad about that. Do you need any help with anything? And they're like, yes. Yeah. Yes, we do. Yoink. Uh, uh Uh-huh. So they find the Black Aja and the magic item in the same place, basically. Uh, And their plan is basically start a riot. Uh, (laughs) Kidnap one of the rulers of the city, get the magic item, and get out. And it works. So, like... (laughs) Again, (laughs) this book is one of my favorites of the entire series just because this is the moment where you're like, oh, yeah, this is a D&D party. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You want to kidnap a a ruler and start a riot in the city to to distract the dark friends? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's spectacular. Make a roll. Well, so the riot's going on outside. Uh, Because it doesn't take very much to make people riot when they're in this kind of civil unrest situation. Yeah, it's everything's a a, a ready to waiting match. There have been riots happening the whole time. They've just been small. So they just start like a really big one. And while that's going on, Elaine goes and kidnaps the Pentarch because they weren't sure if she was working with the Black Aja or like that they're using magic on her to control her, basically. And they're basically using magic on her um is what they're doing and then she rescues the ruler and this was very funny because Nynaeve's like okay great let the pentart go and Elaine's like no this lady needs to learn how the other half of the world lives and she like makes the pentark do chores in the inn that they're staying at yeah because she's like this lady has no idea how her people live yeah and that's bad yeah and it was very funny from Elaine? From Elaine. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like... Elaine has had commentary on how people rule this whole time. The whole time. She's been like, <laughs> why are these people so sad? Their rulers suck and should do better. Yeah. And like, she very much directs her ire and energy towards, hey, the people who are ruling this country could be doing better. Yeah. And like, this whole country would be doing better. Yeah. Um, she, she comes from just... Number one, one of the longest, most stable kingdoms in this mm-hmm. entire realm. And she has been raised essentially by, you know, Queen Elizabeth, who is just the most beautiful, wonderful mm-hmm. queen that has ever been. Yeah. The people love her. Mm-hmm. And she has spent some time like climbing over the walls of of Camelin yeah. and like visiting the yeah. the you know the 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 peasants. The peasants. <laughs> uh, you know, and she also has had a lot of education about other kingdoms and the history of other kingdoms. Mm-hmm. And so she has a very righteous perspective and yes. a fierce sense of responsibility. Yeah. That I think is really heartening, no matter what other foibles she has. Oh, you know, yeah. Her arrogance and, and her pride and everything else. Yeah. She does care. Yeah. And she does understand that any success of leadership and royalty and and or court of any mm-hmm. kind is dependent on the quality of life of the mass of yeah. people that you rule yeah. under your protection and under your guidance and all that. So when she sees somebody else floundering so badly, she's mm-hmm. just like, no, we're you're starting over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
We're going to do the crash course. Let's go. Yeah. Um, the So getting the magic item, Nynaeve goes and gets it and runs into, gosh, one of them forsaken. But this oh, is a surprise. new one. Uh, Mogadine. Mogadine. Who is like... The spider. <laughs> okay. So earlier in Tanchico, somebody shows up and is like, Hey, Nynaeve and Elaine, tell me everything you know. And they're like, we will do that, actually. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's like, it's Mogadine showing up and being like, using her magic to make them spill yeah. what they're doing there and what they know. Um, and they forget about it because magic. Um, <laughs> and then they meet her later and they're like, wait a fucking second. Yep. Uh, so Nynaeve duels the Forsaken uh, with magic instead of with her fists. Yeah. This, ti- this time. This time. Um, and wins. Yeah. Uh, good. Good for her. She beat a 3,000-year-old master magician. Yeah. Who is very good at yeah. what they do and how they do it. And Nani wallops her, essentially. Yeah. Um, kind of really setting the stage because this becomes... Um, like they become arch nemesis. What? Yeah, that's so nemesis. 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 Thank you, arch nemesis. Uh, yeah, I don't know how you pluralize arch nemesis. <laughs> Somebody will find out. It's, it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, this. Uh, you know, of course, we don't necessarily see all the perspectives of it, but. Now this 3,000-year-old master magician has been walloped by an untrained whelp. Yeah. Nynaeve's like 19. <laughs> yeah. No, Nynaeve is in, in her, her mid-20s. 20s. Okay, yeah. still. But she's still a wildling. Yeah. She, she is, is very she is little untrained training. as far as yeah. Mogadine is concerned. Like, this this is in bumpkin yeah. as far as it comes to the one power. Yeah. Um, and she just makes you wonder what she can do when she can actually channel without being angry, huh? Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna. It's gonna take a while to get to that point, though. It will. We're still. Nynaeve is still very much relying on her anger. In like order level to five. Channel. It's, it's gonna be a few. Oh God. But yeah, Mogadine. Again, you, you're starting to see more and more of the Forsaken. Mm-hmm. You're starting to realize that more and more of the Forsaken are released from the Dark One's prison. Oh they're yeah. They're influencing. They're doing the world. whatever they want. They're not and, in there. And again, like you called out at the beginning, like they're all approaching their rise and hunger for power in very distinctly different ways. Yeah. Um, Mogadine, I couldn't remember if it was mentioned in this particular part of the story or not, but uh, Mogadine is old tongue for the spider. Like that's her her name and her mythos mm. is that she is sneaky. She yeah. is conniving. She yeah. is weaving webs that nobody even knows are coming. I don't remember... If they talk specifically about what her name means, but yeah, um, that might have just been in like the context of the back of the book or whatever. I think Lanfear <laughs> explains to Rand what Mogadine is like. I think that's where we get our information on Mogadine. Okay, yeah. Or somebody tells somebody in a dream. I can't remember. There's some somebody explains that Mogadine is like she's gonna she's opportunistic. She's yeah. gonna like set out a bunch of traps. And usually only engage if she knows she's going to win. Yeah. If she starts to lose, she's going to book it yes. and get out and yeah. come back to fight. Live to fight another day is like her mantra. Her absolute mantra. Yeah. Um. So we see that a little bit 
uh, Nynaeve gets distracted and Mulgadine slips away, mm -hmm. basically. But she doesn't, like, strike at Nynaeve's back or try to fight again. No. She leaves so that she can come back and fight again. Yeah. And I think, again, another just kind of contrast in with uh, Swan, like, both she and Mulgadine mm -hmm. kind of have this same determination. It's like, you know, shit has happened. Mm -hmm. I'm in a very low yeah. place, but I'm not dead. Yeah. Tomorrow's I, another day. I yeah. can find more tools. Yeah. Very much. There will come a time <laughs> that will be mine. <sighs> uh, so they get the magic item and they give it to Bale Doman and they're like, hey, throw this in the ocean. Yep. I'm sure it will simply go to the ocean and be gone forever. Yeah. Bale Doman is that kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely wouldn't sell Anything you gave him for a profit. No. For example. Give him some credit. <laughs> Bale Doman's a I, pretty look, good guy. I fully expect this magic item to come back several <laughs> times, okay? <laughs> what I I expect Bale Doman will do his best to throw it away. Yeah. I just also think you wouldn't introduce this item and not do a little more with it. Yeah, than this. absolutely. So it is. It is certainly keep a, an eye out for that one. A a pending threat, and the fact that they immediately want him to go and throw it in the ocean just kind of designates how yeah. terrifying. Yeah, this find the deepest part of the ocean is. you know and put it in. There. Like no one should ever have access to yeah. this. Um, they've already both encountered, and you know, of course, Aguin in particular. Yeah. Um, you know, she's not with this party at the moment, but. They've all encountered the, right. the Sanchen and watching these women that are mm -hmm. enslaved being used as weapons. Yeah. And to to understand all of the knowledge that they have about what's coming mm -hmm. and what's happening to them. And then find that this this Sangreal uh, or Turangreal exists mm -hmm. that can just make Rand a weapon of whoever. Yeah. Particularly a dark friend yeah. or one of the forsaken and they're just like we can't we don't have the knowledge or the power to break it or destroy it yeah they just got to put it as far away from humanity as possible mm. um i don't even remember thinking about a male adam when the sanction got introduced in yeah. in the later books or the earlier books i mean but when this got mentioned in this book and started being introduced you're just like Oh, of course that's a thing. Yeah. Well, do they have male channelers entrapped in Sanchen? What's going on over there? And yeah, could this be done to Rand? That's horrible. Like I think so for the Aiel, when a male gets the ability to channel, he goes and fights the Blight until he dies. Yep. Like, that's what he does. Um... And I feel like the sun should just kill all the men they find that can channel. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that's discussed uh, pretty on, yeah. early on. But, like, it is curious that they have the way to make these tools, but they yeah. haven't been able to make it work for male channelers. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And 
that's the end of this episode. Thank you for joining me. This is a reminder that the rest of this episode will come out in two weeks and we'll talk about Matt and finally touch on Rand's story and probably some more stuff that I've forgotten about. Thank you, as always, for listening. 